Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solveto.fi slash pro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I realize now that it's been the first week in months that when I have meetings, which I have every day, but meetings where I don't need a real computer because the typical meeting that I have is is a workshop or training session or some such where I'm usually sharing something or delivering content. But this week, for the first time in months, I've only had audio only meetings. And there's two funny things here. One is that when I know that I don't need to be positioned next to a computer, when I'm sending out the calendar invitation, I add let's do audio only in the notes to sort of signify for the for the other attendees that I plan on not being on the computer, I plan on not using video, I will be audio only. The second thing is this allows me to go for a walk outside. So yesterday I had three meetings. I did seven kilometers, which is about four miles by the shore here in, in Helsinki. It was awesome. The meeting sort of flows more natural when you can just focus on on the audio and, and whatever scenery you have. And for 2023, I definitely plan on doing more of this. I love that. And so we call these walk and talks. Sometimes when we have a lunch meeting, we call them walk and talk uh, or something like that, which is whenever you're required to have a meeting, you need to sync on some ideas or whatever it is, uh, but you don't need to do screen sharing, don't need to actually look at something on the screen. I've tried that a couple of times, and similar to you, it's it's a great experience. It kind of reminds me of the calls I do when I'm in the car, right? Because in the car, you also don't have the video. You don't have a screen presentation or something that you can look at, but you can still make the call. So the same thing is true for a walk and talk or, or going outside. So I, I love that reflection, something that I'm trying to do as well. I did have recently a, a couple of maybe miscommunications on when I said I'm, I'm going to join the meeting, but I'm not going to be able to see the screen. It was me and, and one or two others. And they start doing a, a presentation in PowerPoint saying, hey, this is what do you think about the, this content? And I'm not able to watch the screen. So I like that you're making that clear. Set the boundary for the expectations of the call and then do more of these. Definitely do more of those. I, I really like it. Um, so on my side, um, I'm, I'm just reflecting now that this is the final recording of the year. And I think that when you're listening to this, though, the holidays might actually be over because I think this will be out in January. So we're recording it just before the holidays. Um, I've been cleaning the house, which is more like cleaning house. So tidying up all the, the work tasks, tidying, tidying up all the loose ends at home that it, you know are on the to-do lists. So not much updated here on on my end i'm just really looking forward to the holiday season that's coming up so well it's still coming up for us but again when you're listening to this the holiday season is probably just about rounding off so uh, with that said i hope you had a great holiday <laughs> when you listen to this um, but that's it for me Alrighty, sounds good today we will talk about azure updates our frequent look at whatever is interesting in terms of updates announcements new capabilities new features so we both have items on our list. Let me let me start on my end first. 
And I'm, I'm picking perhaps the most interesting one, but also the sort of most fluffiest one at the same time. So Microsoft announced the phased rollout of the EU data boundary for the Microsoft Cloud. And this will start on the 1st of January 2023. And when I, when I say it's the fluffiest one, is that we've had a couple of updates this year, and I think one update in 2021 on, on what the EU data boundary actually means. So if you're located, if you're based outside the EU region, region you don't really perhaps care about this, but if you're within EU, you really do care about this. The idea, and I am not an expert on this, but the idea here is that when companies and customers deploy whatever services, whatever uh, data to Azure or Microsoft 365 or Power Platform or Dynamics 365, they will inevitably ask you, the consultant or the advisor, where is my data? And obviously you will say, well, it's in West Europe, which is in the Netherlands, or in North Europe, which is in Ireland. In the future, perhaps in Finland, already now you can, you can deploy to Sweden and so on. So the next question is, will all of my data be stored there? Will any of my data be transferred outside the EU region? And as of before the EU data boundary, yes, some data will be transferred outside the EU region, and this might be a problem. And it takes a lot of time to figure out what data specifically on what services and how it's being transferred outside the EU region. So. This is sort of more of a Microsoft pledge to do their best to re-architect some of the services in Azure and the other clouds to maintain and keep the data in EU region. And now with the announcement, there's more technical documentation on what this means at the service level. And perhaps let's not rehash all of those. You can have a look at the show notes for the for the direct links, and there's plenty to read. We might do an episode on this in the future as well, but but for now, this has nothing to do with technology. There's no configuration. There's no dashboard. It's just a guidance on how Microsoft will be managing your data. For me, the challenge has been that certain aspects of Azure Active Directory have maintained a replica and or a backup in the US. And this has been problematic, not, not as much as I feared, but it's still something we need to tackle during projects. And the announcement does not change anything on this behalf. There's a re-architecting effort undergoing at Microsoft to fix things like this. So now we have more transparency on this, no new services to announce, announce based on this. Toby, I know we either of us is a lawyer, so we haven't read all of the technical guidance, but this is such an interesting topic. But do you have any any thoughts or is this something that 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 you see on, on, on a daily basis, perhaps perhaps affecting whatever you do with Azure? So that's a great question. In in my current role, I don't experience this as such a big problem because right now I'm obviously working with Microsoft and I'm kind of soaked into the big machine. Uh, so all of that is kind of taken care of for me. But in my previous roles and 
looking back with customers, looking back in projects and companies I've worked with, uh, this is pretty significant in more of the regulatory compliance section. So we we know when GDPR happened, that was a big thing, and you know we had to kind of do a mind shift with organizations for how to protect data properly. So GDPR was you know a big milestone when that happened, and there was also a lot of worry about how do we get this. Like, how do we protect the data? How do we ensure that we can live up to this? And a lot of companies were doing training and they ramped up and and things like that. And I think with the EU data boundary, it might not be as big of a ramp up now because we are already seeing that organizations are GDPR compliant. They're already ready to tackle data privacy and, and, uh, you know, where data resides and they can prove it. And, you know, what kind of PII do you have? What kind of data do you have? Uh, so with the EU data boundary, I, I think when this now starts rolling out with Microsoft and the different Microsoft clouds and different services and things like that, um, I don't see it as such a big impact as other data privacy or, or data regulations that came out. But I think it's a pretty good thing. And it's a, sending great signals saying that we're really taking this seriously. Like the European Union, we're taking data seriously. If you're operating within the boundaries of EU, this is how we want you to feel safe with your data. And this is how you can ensure that you are safe with that data. And this is how companies need to kind of live by those rules. I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And I think in the next year, when this has kind of rolled out, we can reflect a bit maybe in a single episode about this and how it's how Microsoft and Azure and 365 and all of this is tied together and, and how this works as a benefit for customers. But right now, I still, I'm not deep uh, enough into the details of how this will impact customers uh, because I'm not in touch with those customers right now. But over the next couple of weeks and, and in the new year, we'll have um, a natural contact point with a lot of customers for different things. And I'm pretty sure this will come up. So hopefully this is something that we can uh, touch point, uh, touch base on and, and uh, maybe even have an episode on in the new year. Uh, so on my side, now I'm just thinking about the regulatory compliance and data <laughs> privacy and things like that. But on my side, something around security is now in GA generally available. It's feature enhancements to the Azure Web Application Firewall, the WAF. So the global web application firewall uh, running on Azure Front Door and the regional web application firewall running on Application Gateway, they now both support additional features. And, and these can help the organizations improve security postures and make it easier to manage logging across resources. And some of those enhanced features are SQL injection and cross-site scripting detection queries. So the new Azure WAF and analytics SQL injection and cross-site uh, scripting detection rule templates now exist. And that simplifies the process of uh, kind of setting up automated detection and response with Microsoft Security Incident and Event Management or CM which is, in Microsoft's case, Microsoft Sentinel. So there are some new templates and rule templates for that. So SQL injection and cross-site scripting, uh, something that is still on the OWASP top 10 list of most common web threat vectors where uh, websites and systems are being exploited. So definitely something to take seriously. So that's one added feature uh, for the WAF. Take a look at those rule templates if you're deploying WAF, which I urge you to do if you're using uh, anything that is exposed to the to the web. Um, so either using Azure Front Door as a front end or application gateway, depending on if you need the, the global WAF or, or the regional WAF. 
take a look at those detection rule templates. Pretty cool. Another update for the Azure Web Application Firewalls is Azure policies for WAF logging. And this is something I could probably spend an entire episode talking about. And we have touched many times on Azure policies. We have talked a lot about governance in the cloud, talked about security postures, all these things. So now both WAF editions and the Web Application Firewall editions, they now have built-in Azure policies requiring resource logs and metrics. So we can enable those and say, whenever you deploy a regional WAF or a global WAF, meaning WAF on Application Gateway or WAF on uh, Azure Front Door, uh, this now allows you to enforce standards for any WAF deployment to collect logs and metrics, saying that needs to be enabled. So pr prior to that, you could you could not really use Azure policies to force the logging capabilities. You could use Azure policies to a lot of things, but not specifically for enforcing logging for a WAF. Now you can. So that's awesome. It's a small addition, but the security posture and cloud governance is really improving in this area. So ultimately, of course, this helps you with your security event analysis and insights and all these things. So you can now, if, if you have a huge organization, you have multiple subscriptions and you have management groups um, and you have resource groups here and there and you have delegated admins and owners all over the place and someone is deploying a web application firewall to whatever resource they have, you can enforce with Azure policy that it needs to have these logging capabilities enabled as an example. So that's pretty cool. Another added feature is the increased execution limit. So the CRS or the core rule set 3.2 or higher, and these numbers will make sense to you if you use web application firewall a lot. So the core rule set 3.2 or higher and now supports exclusion limits of up to 200. And so if you work with that, you know that that's about a five times increase from the previous versions. Um, and this is a limit I've seen in the field where some companies needed to make a lot of exclusions, you know, very unique exclusions. And at some some point, they just reached the, the boundary saying, you don't have room to add more exclusions now because there's a limit. Now that limit is 200, which is a five time increase. So that's good. Pretty much that allows for greater customization on how your web application firewall handles managed rule sets. Small update, but um, significant impact. There's another feature, uh, which is bot manager. Um, and the bot manager rule set exclusion rules. So with the bot manager rule set 1.0, uh, you now have exclusions um, that are extended. So you can also use exclusions with the bot manager rule set. And finally, might also be a small one, it's uppercase transform on custom rules. So custom rules, if you're using the web application firewall, is something where you can set up a uh, a customer rule saying, well, if this pattern happens or if that happens, then this is the action I want to take. So it might be a small feature enhancement, but it's something that I've seen missing myself in the past when working with these services. So now you can handle case sensitivity when creating custom WAF rules. Uh, and now you can use uh, uppercase transform in addition to the lowercase transform. So sometimes you need to take case sensitivity into account when you create your rules. Now you can do that with both uppercase and lowercase transformation. So again, Small update. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's cool. Uh, if you do work with the web application firewall or if you are looking at using that, this makes perfect sense. And this is something to you don't need to dive into, but it's good to have at the back of the mind thinking, all right, I know that there's a capability around this. And, and, and that's something you can consider when you're going to uh, go and deploy your things. So yeah, that, that was a, one update with a lot of kind of minor changes and enhancements to the WAF service. So that's my first.
that's a lot of updates to to VAF. I I like the last one the most, the uppercase transform on custom <laughs> rules. I'm sort of thinking that I'm adding a custom rule and I'm typing the name of the rule and I can now enforce uppercase for the name, but I fear this is not for the name, this is for the actual rule. Yeah. Alrighty, uh, next on my list is um, the Azure Integration Services Landing Zone Accelerator is now available. So this is a project on GitHub. Uh, and what it means is that the AIS, the Azure Integration Services, it's a collective name for API management, Azure Data Factory, Event Grid, Event Hubs, Function Apps, Logic Apps, Service Bus, and Storage Accounts. So when we talk about AIS, we mean a collection of these services orchestrated in a way for enterprise use to build integration services. So now there's uh, an accelerator for a landing zone. How do we get started with this? How do we implement this as according to best practices so that identity and access management is taken care of? It's secure by default. It's manageable. Uh, there's a governance in place. There's automation in place. There's a DevOps pipeline in place. So this repo on GitHub, and we have a link in the show notes, includes the deployment scripts, the reference architecture on this, and guidance and insights on all of the main use cases and all of the, the categories on how you would define and implement. I'm, I'm not deeply exposed to Azure integration services as through the collective approach. I use all of these quite frequently, but often it's dictated by how the customer might feel they need to use this. And the collective name has been around for a number of years now, and I'm, I'm happy to see some sort of a, of a cohesive approach on how should you deploy these so that they are secure, they scale, and you can actually rely on the deployment without sort of inventing your own approach for this. Yeah, that's an interesting update. I, I don't have a lot of insights into how Azure integration services uh, work, uh, or I haven't got that much experience with that in production at least. Um, but I love that, you know, we keep seeing these landing zone accelerators coming out and Azure landing zone is something that's grown into one of the most popular topics, uh, you know, for, for new customers and existing customers when they kind of need to go into the cloud. So I, I really love to see things happening in this area. The next update on my side is now in GA. It's also publicly available right now. It's Azure static web app diagnostics. And I know we had an episode maybe this year or last year. I don't even know what year we had it where we talked with Ilius Troif about uh, static web apps, where he deployed static web, app, web apps and used an Azure function as a backend and, and all these kind of cool things. Now, there's an update to Azure static web apps where you have a new diagnostic section. So this is generally available, like I said, and you can access this right now. It's a tool to help you troubleshoot your static web apps directly from the Azure portal. And you might think, well, isn't that part of web apps already? It is something that's part of the normal Azure web apps. It's something that's been part of web apps for a long time, many years. But for the Azure static web apps, that has been missing for quite some time. So now you can diagnose what went wrong, and the tool then shows you how to resolve the issues. 
So you have different categories for diagnostics data. I took a look at this right now, and you have some categories for diagnostics data, like availability and performance. You have health and performance data, like service uptimes, uh, you know, how many hits you have to your site, uh, the platform health in general, things like that. You have configuration and management uh, category, and that's like application configuration data, like configuration of static web app features, custom authentication information, things like that. And then you also have a category for content deployment. And that's pretty much just content deployment data that shows you insights about the deployments that you've done for your static web app. So I know some of the people we've talked with that I've been in touch with over the last year or two, uh, talking about Azure static web apps, one of the things that we're missing was insights and not insights on usage because you can add a, a Google Analytics for that. You can add application insights for that. You can add whatever you want to kind of track the usage and 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 that side of things. But something that was missing was like, how is my app doing? How is, what is the health of my actual app? Uh, so that is now available with the uh, diagnose and, and solve tool, um, if you will, for um, for that. So it's pretty convenient, but it's super, super lightweight. So when I open it in the browser, you can go to the reports and see like availability and performance. You can set the time, last one hour, last whatever time period you want. You can see the site hits, the backend hits, site errors, backend errors, and bandwidth that you've used with the sites. Uh, you can see requests and average response times, so stuff like that. But it's it's not super deep, but it's a lot better than it used to be because it didn't exist before, right? So anything is is better than nothing in, in this aspect. So it uh, might be a small update when you read it, like uh, there's a diagnostic tool for Azure Static Web Apps, but it's a huge impact because I know a lot of people have been looking for this which is why I wanted to bring that up here. So if you're working with Azure st uh, Static Web Apps or you've been thinking about it, now you can go take a look at the diagnostics tool and start getting insights about how your app is performing and the health of your app, You know how much bandwidth you use, all these kind of default performance counters, if you will. So pretty cool update, uh, significant impact, but uh, a small kind of addition to the service. I like this update, definitely the content deployment view or insights because when something fails when you're deploying content to your static web app typically from github or azure devops i dislike that i have to go back to my pipeline configuration to figure out what went wrong i would like to see that from the destination that well we received this but something went wrong so here is the is the logs for you at the at the goal of of of, of your service instead of at, at the source I'll definitely need to take a look at this one. Uh, next on my list is enhanced company branding for signing experiences in Azure AD. So this feels like the AD Federation Services signing experience branding all over again. <laughs> I, I think we did that like 10 years ago quite heavily because mm -hmm. when you would have federated identities, you would sign in to wherever, perhaps to Exchange Online to read your emails we would modify the signing page to have the company colors and uh, a useful link to the service desk and whatnot. So this is now enhanced and it was there before, but now you can more freely configure the layout. If it's full screen or partial screen, you can hide or show the header and the footer. You can add your custom CSS. You can even change the fav icon that shows in the in the bookmarks and, and in the address bar. I haven't done this yet, but I do know I, I need to tweak a couple of 
couple of signing pages for a couple of environments of mine. Sadly, this requires the Azure AD Premium P1 or P2 license. And, and this requires, as I understand it, it requires it for all of your users who might be exposed to this one. But this also applies to B, B2B users, all first-party applications, and all of your users. So I, I like it's finally there. It seems to be comprehensive, and you can add your custom image. You can tweak and optimize bits and pieces here and there. At the same time, though, I'm not sure how many companies bother with this because they've been using the default layout for 10, 15 years now. So why bother with this? Or perhaps changing the colors, adding a couple of links in the footer would be worthwhile here. Yeah, this brings me back. I, I remember some of the projects and like you said, it's, it's many years ago then and then we did this uh, with the first type of customizations on the signing pages. And uh, it brings me back. I remember there were huge branding projects and there was big budgets for branding SharePoint at the time and branding Microsoft 365 whenever that became a thing uh, after BPOS, which was the business productivity online suite. And that was for anyone who doesn't know what that is. That's the first incarnation of what today is uh, Microsoft 365. So it was used to be called BPOS. So around that time frame, I remember things like this showing up. You can start uh, branding things. And I remember the budgets for branding was insane. And now we're seeing things move the other direction, like keep everything as default as possible and just change the colors and the logo. And I really like this thing for the signing experience where you can customize the signing page. It's a small thing but it does get your kind of brand awareness into all aspects of your, your daily workflow. So just some side notes on that. So I, I have one final update on my mind and on my list that I think is super small update, but it's incredibly impactful. So it's now in public preview. So it's not GA just yet, it's in preview still. It's tag inheritance for cost management. And that's for me, that's just, yes, finally. Uh, in my previous roles, when I operated all you know all the different infrastructures and clouds and, and multi-cloud environments and whatever, one of the things that was a challenge is rolling up costs or or aggregating costs for specific resources. So this is now in public preview, which is use tag inheritance for cost management. And we can automatically apply subscription and resource group tags to child resources using um, the, on the usage records. So essentially your, your billing statement or the, the usage statement saying, this is what you used, then you can see the tags. And the thing that is important here is that if you tag your subscription with a, a tag inheritance and saying this subscription is, um, I don't know, an example for my tag is cost center SecOps, the security operating uh, team, for example. If we put that tag on a specific isolated subscription that we use only for security analysis and threat in intelligence or whatever, all the resources within that subscription will now have that tag, the cost center SecOps tag applied. So you don't have to go into specific resources to apply the tag. So that's pretty awesome. And, and the same goes with resource groups where the inheritance works on that level as well. And, and that's great because a lot of companies, they use resource groups as a logical separator of concerns. So now you can inherit tagging of all the resources from there, making the billage, uh, billing usage reports kind of more convenient to read and more understandable. So it's a small update um, when you view it on the surface, but wow, could I have used this a lot in the production shops that I've maintained and operated over the years. 
So the like the simplicity of it is you go to your subscription or, or for example, a resource group, you apply a tag there, and with uh, tag inheritance, all the resources within that resource group or all the resources within that subscription, if that's the level you tag, will automatically get the tag. So for cost management, this is awesome, right? Because that was a challenge with a lot of customers that I spoke with. It was a challenge for me when I operated things in the past as well. How do I know, uh, you know, what billing center or what cost center this resource should go to because we missed to tag it? And in the usage API, that was not always apparent. So now we can have a logical um, application of tags. Doesn't matter what the resource groups look like. Doesn't matter how we structure our data. We can now apply our own business logic and our cost center logic, if you will, across all these resources and just inherit that down so we don't need to go to every single resource and say, oh, we need to tag it. Because in the past, I remember, and I think we talked about this on the show as well, we talked about using Azure policies to automatically drive uh, tags to specific resources or resource group. So for example, when you create a resource group, you have to put a cost center in. Um, and, and you can, of course, still do that. But now you can make that uh, all the resources in that subscription inherit a specific uh, tag for your cost center, as an example. So it's a it's a small update, but I, we can spend probably 20 minutes talking only about use cases for this now. But I think that's kind of the gist of it. That's the only thing you need to to know now is we have tag inheritance for cost management. So subscriptions and resource groups can inherit tags down to their resources that live inside of these uh, boundaries, which means you can automatically start uh, looking at the usage reports, knowing that all the resources are properly tagged. Super cool. It's it's a small thing, but I've needed this as, as well. So once we're done recording this episode, I will go and try this out. The last item on my list, this is a fairly simple update, but I, I feel it it might be useful for, for some in the audience. A public preview is now available for viewing SQL Server databases that are managed through Azure Arc. So let's unpack this a bit. Why do you need this again? If you have virtual machines running SQL Server, they might be on-premises VMs, they might be physical servers in on-premises, or they might be VMs elsewhere uh, than Azure or VMs in Azure. So you might use Azure Arc to govern those machines, those VMs and physical servers. And now you want to ask questions such as, which databases are encrypted? What instances of SQL servers do we have? What licenses are we using? Once you use this, and once you have Azure Arc deployed to manage SQL servers, you can now use KQL, the query language, to query query for details like this, and you can build obviously charts and reports and workbooks. And you can also go to the Azure Arc um, view in Azure Portal, find out whatever SQL box you like, and you you have a nice list of the properties, like which instances are available, which databases do you have, how big are they? So it reveals more statistics and more information without you needing to go through through SQL Management Studio to understand what do we actually have. All, but I feel this is, is fairly useful, especially if you have a lot of SQL servers. Alrighty, 
that was all for now. The last bit is the unexpected question. And and uh, this week, Toby, it's going to be my turn to ask you. Okay, let's go. What would be the required thing for car dealerships to share their price lists as modern web content instead of how they do today, a downloadable PDF file that seems to be formatted in Excel? <laughs> I don't know what kind of cars you buy, but so so here's two sides of this story, right? Uh, just to answer the question without a new question, I would say that that requires that all the people in the audience, the buyers, are modern. They're not, right? So we're not quite there where everyone who buys a new car today is, you know, they have a computer, they have an internet connection at home, and they have a laptop set up, and they do everything digitally. There's still a lot of people that just goes to the car dealership actually looks at the physical cars and they say, hey, I want this one. And then they get one of those lists that you talk about. But my experience is actually that for a lot of the, the companies I looked at, you can build your own car virtually and you get this 3D model and you also get the price right there on the web page. But indeed, if you do want the full price list, some of the times it, it is a PDF file that is formatted like an Excel table. But I think that's I think that's how it is. Some websites are updated for the more modern. I see a lot of the, I was looking at some of the EV, the electrical vehicles and like the mid-range SUVs some time ago. Every single website offering those, they have a pretty good experience where you get the price directly on the web. I get the price and then I call the dealership and I say, hey, you gave me this price, but I want 25% off uh, just because I want to haggle a bit. And and they're they're like, no, this is the fixed price. And then I said, well, if this is your fixed price, you're going to lose me as a customer. But if you can get me 20% off, I'm going to come by it right now, today. Then all of a sudden they say, well, you can get 15% off. And I'm like, all right, cool. And I didn't actually buy it because I didn't get my 20%. But I, I still think there is room for negotiation. Whatever you get on that list, there's room for negotiation. But I think the experience uh, online is actually pretty great. If you use one of these build your own cars, if you're going to order a new car, so my experience is slightly different. I don't see a lot of the downloadable PDF files formatted as Excel, but I get the point. I have seen them, and I do believe that there's probably a lot of those around still. But for me, I just I just go build your car, take a look at it, or I look at used cars if there's something that someone that's already produced. So I don't have to kind of produce a new vehicle, you know, with the impact on the environment and all that stuff. Maybe it's better to get a a used car, and uh, so we don't produce more stuff thinking about sustainability and whatever. But now I feel this discussion is getting deep. Uh, so, so let's just round it off over there. I don't have an answer why they still do that. It's 2023, I think, when you're listening to this. And if you were going to buy a car and you download a file in PDF that has a list formatted as Excel inside of that, then call your dealership and ask, hey, what happened? You know, the, the 90s, the 90s called and, and they want their PDF file back. So that's it's an unexpected question for sure, and I'm just <laughs> rambling now with my answers. So I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna stay silent from now on. That sounds good. I I feel often that one of the reasons is is that the internal processes are so manual. Somebody emails somebody else. Here's the accessories. Here's the cars. Here's the prices. Just push this online, and you can just do file save as PDF, copy it to a directory, and magically it appears on a website. Maybe they're using uh, a SharePoint list and business connectivity services, and they're exporting that through uh, the sync to Excel, and then they're printing that as a PDF file. There you go. 
<laughs> memories and not all good ones here. <laughs> Alrighty, thank you for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode for you again next week on Wednesday. All right, see you then.